Hello, I'm Court Dial, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tamir Nasir. And on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Court Dial. Court is the president of Court Dial Consulting, where he has successfully guided executives from organizations such as Chevron, Intel, Disney, and Apple to cultivate a new breed of leader. His new book, Heretics to Heroes, a memoir on modern leadership, was recognized as the number one business book of 2016 by the Globe and Mail and was awarded the Gold Nonfiction Book Award and will serve as the focus of our conversation today. Hi, Court. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dan Vare. Appreciate uh, you having me on. Now, Court, to start things off, I have to point out to my listeners how your book is very different from the books of other leadership authors I've invited on my show because your book is, as your subtitle states, a memoir on modern leadership. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about your book, not only because this conversation is going to take a somewhat different approach from previous ones here on my show, but also because, given the personal nature of your book, I feel in some ways like I know you in addition to knowing about your approach to leadership. So because this is a memoir, what I'd like to do is talk about some of the stories you share and the insights on leadership they reveal. But before we get to that, though, Court, I first want to talk about what you describe in your book as the all-in leader. What does all-in leadership mean and what attributes do people have to possess to be like some of the all-in leaders whose stories we're going to be talking about? Well, in general, all-in leader means someone who's made a profound commitment to whatever it is they're leading. And for that individual, there's no going back. Uh, I say you're all in when you step through a door and the door's disappeared behind you and there's no, no other option than going forward. So that's it in general. However, when I, when I sit down with a leader and talk about what does an all-in leader possess, there's essentially six characteristics, six realizations, and six abilities that, that an all-in leader has uh, once they've reached that level of leadership. And, and I say you've reached the pinnacle of leadership when you can produce extraordinary results while caring for people. Now, Court, I want to delve into one of those points that you mentioned about and you just referred to about all-in leaders possess. And this is this idea that they have to have this idea of who they are and what they stand for. And now on the surface, this seems pretty straightforward. And yet I can think of several leaders I've worked with who, if I asked them what they stand for, they'd refer to their organization's vision. And for who they are, they'd refer to their position or role within their organization. So to be clear here, that's not what we're talking about here, right? No, it's not. And I just worked with a team of leaders over the weekend at a retreat and I asked, had them all make a pre presentation answering the question, who are you really? And what is it that you stand for in this world? And I gave them the, the assignment the night before and the next morning they were talking about how difficult it was to do that assignment. So most of us have never really been asked those questions and, and never answered those questions. Okay, so now with this understanding in place, Court, I'd like to delve into some of the stories you share that reveal some important lessons about how we can be successful leading others in today's environment. Now, if there's one thing that leaders everywhere can relate to, it's having to deal with failure. And in your book, you share the kind of failure none of us would want to face, that of someone who's under your care to lead dying on the job. 
And it's clear this experience shaped and informed not only your career choices, but your outlook on leadership. But instead of discussing that story, what I'd like to focus on is a story you write about during your time working as part of the management team at a manufacturing plant in the U.S. Midwest. And there was a workplace accident where one of the workers was riding on the tailgate of a truck to get from the plant to the bus stop outside the facility, and he fell off the tailgate and fractured his skull. Now, the reason why I'd love for you to share this story is because the typical response that I think many of us have to hearing this is, why was this worker sitting on the tailgate? Why would he put himself in such a dangerous situation? Something which you write in your book was exactly what all the managers at this plant were trying to figure out. And so could you share this story of what happened and how the managers at this plant responded and how you got them to shift to what they should really be focusing on? Well, you mentioned the gentleman who died under my care, and he, I was, uh, at, if not directly, uh, greatly indirectly responsible for his death. And as a result of that experience, I made a commitment, and the commitment was I'm committed to the health, safety, and well-being of the men and women who design, build, operate, and maintain the world, the working men and women of the world, the people who get up and bust their tails every day. And this was... Uh, a point in time a few years later where that was being threatened and my commitment was there. And a reason I wrote about it in the book, it was the first time I ever took a stand, like a public stand. And uh, we were in the middle of investigating this and essentially the plant manager took the position, this guy screwed up. If he screws up again, uh, we need to terminate him. And by the way, he said to the supervisor, if I ever uh, have something like this again in your in your group, you'll be terminated too. And for me, that was going to cause nothing but cause all the incidents to go underground, reporting to go underground. So I realized that that we weren't asking the correct question. So I asked the supervisor a series of questions, which ultimately revealed that that no one in the organization did anything, including the supervisors, his fellow employees that it, it revealed to the management team there that we all played a part in this incident, that we all had a role to play. And it was all together that we got somebody hurt. And the plant manager, uh, you know, confronted me and I essentially, he, he, he uh, was very upset that I asserted that he could have somehow been involved. And at a certain point I told him exactly how he was in, uh, involved in, uh, the consequence of that, me taking a stand, was I was told by him I would never speak to him again and I would never enter his office again, and he was going to put me up for insubordination. But at that moment in time, that really didn't matter to me. Uh, my commitment, that when, when someone holds a commitment, I describe it like this for myself. It's like a, a, a light that shines on me, and when I'm standing in my commitment, when I'm in my stand, Nothing can harm or touch me. I'm invincible. And that's what the beauty of, of knowing who I am and knowing what I stand for in this world. That's the power that awareness gives, gives a person, gives a leader. Absolutely. And, you know, the reason, Court, why I wanted to start for this particular story is I think it helps set the stage for the next story that I really enjoyed reading in your book because it offers another important insight into how we should view our role as leaders, especially the real impact we have on the performance we get from our employees. And the story in question is about your time working to help improve a company's performance in building a petrochemical plant in the Middle East. Now, from the moment you joined this team planning on building this new plant, you 
pushed for this idea that the driving goal behind this project should be to build this plant while making sure no one is hurt during the building of this project. Now, the part of the story I want to focus on is not on getting the senior project leaders to agree to this notion, but rather the challenge you faced getting the foreman to commit to the project's goal of building this facility and not hurting anyone in the process. In your book, you have a chapter where you focus on those conversations where you meet with these foremen in Bahrain and you stand before them and you ask them, will you be willing to make this commitment to this project's goal of building this facility not hurting anyone in the process? And these foremen had an interesting response to your query as to whether they would commit to this. And I'd love it, Court, if you could share the story of what you had to face in terms of getting these foremen who were basically responsible for overseeing the workers to agree to this commitment. What was their reaction and how did you ultimately get them to see from your vantage point what it is that you wanted them to understand was really their role as leaders? Well, to set the stage, uh, I'm asked often, why do you write so many times in your book about safety? And I said, my answer to that is safety is a wonderful window through which to lead, to which to grow a great culture, to which to uh, produce uh, extraordinary performance. And most organizations see safety as something they need to comply with, not as a huge opportunity it really is. And the other thing that's a reason I tell this story is leaders play big games. And so we had put a big game in front of these foremen, and that was that we're going to build this plant, work millions of man hours, have thousands of men. And I say men because at that time only men worked in Saudi. Thousands of men here doing extremely hazardous work, and we're not going to harm a soul. And in order in, in order to get people to give you the most out of themselves, you have to invite them into playing a big game. But in, for, in order for them to get into action, they have to experience something that's called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is is a, a psychological state when you feel what you're being asked to do is doable, you feel it's within your control, and you have high confidence it's going to happen. And that wasn't the case with these foremen. Their whole lives, they'd worked on plants all over the world where people died all the time. People were hurt and disabled all the time. And so their whole experience was this was impossible. So when I put that invitation up in front of them, they they wanted to find psychologically a way to say no without showing up as I don't care about safety. And so what they pulled out of their pocket and everybody does some form of song and dance when you put something like this in front of them. Well, their response to that inquiry was what they called inshallah. And they told me that inshallah in the Muslim faith meant it's all up to God. So they kept saying, we, uh, we can't answer your question. We can't respond to your invitation because we have no control over any of this. It's all left to Allah. And so I, I spent a number of months trying to enroll them. And by enroll, I mean create a space where they could exercise free will and choose to be part of this. And their response was always inshallah, inshallah, inshallah. So finally... I visited a, uh, one of the largest mosques in the world in Bahrain, and I asked for a teacher, and he came out, and he basically said, these gentlemen are only giving you half the story. Yes, we believe that, that um, all that happens is in the, the will of Allah. However, we also believe that uh, men's efforts have a role to play in this. So I said, so in other words, uh, with our hard work, 
and God willing, it will happen. And he said, yes, you pretty much captured it. Um, but the, the moment this really turned, I was planning on going back and putting that in front of these men. But the moment this whole conversation really turned was when I asked them this question, which was, what's the difference between your sons and the sons of all the other men and, and women who we're going to bring onto this project, those young men and, and uh, who are going to come here and you say have to die in order to build this. You say have to be hurt in order to build this. And that causes them to get some real skin in the game. And ultimately, they came to the conclusion, as one of them said, and I don't want to tell the whole story because it's one of the most powerful stories in the book. But one of them said, you know, who was from Jordan, you know, the moon doesn't care whether it shines on Jordan or Pakistan. And the reason he said Pakistan was most of these workers would be coming from Pakistan. And I responded, well, apparently it does. Because, gentlemen, what you've been telling me for months is simply this. It's okay for other men's children to die, sons to die, but it's not okay for mine. And I want to know, is that who I'm talking with? And if you can, can you see that I'm trying to get them to answer that question? Who am I in this conversation? Who am I in this moment? Am I a person who's perfectly okay with killing men? Or is that not okay for me? And am I a stand for, for these men? Well, a couple months later, we had been performing un unbelievably, and they sent an audit team to come figure out how we were pulling off this miracle. We'd worked 8 million man hours and hadn't hurt a soul. And they did an audit, but of course they audited all those tangible things, the behaviors and the systems and the equipment and all that stuff. They never really got inside the people. And when they shared the results, the audit team leader said, um, I'm sorry, but we can't figure out how you're doing this. And one of those foremen stood up and said, you know, you're looking in the wrong place. None of that's different. That's in this, that's no different than any project I've been on. And the audit team leader said, well, where should I be looking? And he said, me, you should be looking at us. And he said, well, what's different about you? And he stood up and he, he took the posture of taking a stand and he said, you know, I'm a great supervisor. I can build anything. And, and I'm a great constructor and supervisor. I'm one of the best supervisors and instructors in the world, and I've been at it for 40 years. But on this project, I am much more than that. On this project, I am a father. And when he said that, it just moved the whole room because everyone in the room knew what he was talking about because they'd all been through these conversations and chosen to become part of this commitment to building this thing without harming anyone. And a lot of people were all choked up and everything. And the audit team leader sat there and, you know, he had this analytical mind and he's trying to figure out what the heck did this man just tell me? But it was like a light going on. You could see it in his head that, and he turned to him. And he said, you know, I'm starting to understand how you're pulling off this miracle. Now, Court, I do want to stay with this story because I also love how it gives us a chance to address those cultural, religious, and social issues that every leader now needs to be prepared to navigate in today's interconnected world. And so I want to delve deeper into how you got these foremen who are basically telling you when saying, inshallah, that the way they saw it, whether someone got injured or not, was out of their hands because it's in God's hands. And for our listeners in North America who are not religious, I think a comparable statement that we're all familiar with is, it is what it is where we're basically saying this is something we have no control over and or was going to happen anyways. So you mentioned earlier how you spoke with what I assume was one of the imams at the local mosque to ask more about what inshallah means. And he told you that while it does mean 
God willing. What's behind the statement is that idea that while whatever happens must be in God's plans for what is best for the world, which, of course, means not necessarily best for that individual, nothing happens without the actions and will of the people. Now, when I read this, I realized that if we take this out of its religious context, what we're basically saying here is that Inshallah means that we're going to do what we can to make things better, even if the consequences of that might not be what's best for us. But we're doing this with the hope or aspiration that this will nonetheless be what's best for all who might be impacted by our actions. And seen from that context, I think we can appreciate just how important such an outlook is to being a successful leader who brings out the best in those they lead, because your focus is not on your personal gain, but to strive towards the betterment of those around you. Yeah, and, and faith plays a role. Um, as I said earlier, to, to experience self-efficacy, you have to have a sense of control. But at the same time, we all know we, we, we're living in a world of chance. You know, um, stuff happens. So it's that wrestle you have. Basically, what's wrestling is between your mind, which is very analytical and practical, and it knows that at some point in time, someone's going to get hurt. You know, you can't work forever without harming anywhere. But if you go to another place, which I call your heart, that's not acceptable. And your heart, you can still say, and, and yeah, even though that's so, I'm still, we're still going to make it happen. Um, the best leaders I've found are the ones who can, who can say, we'll figure that out along the way. Uh, and have high confidence that we will figure it out and we will get it. Uh, get it done. There's a a lot of times when I'm in a what I call a commitment or enrollment conversation with a group of people, one of the things that will hold them back from from embracing and saying yes, in other words, signing up, saying yes, I'm in. You can count on me to to deliver. Is they want to know that they can deliver it. They they say things, and it's all about their integrity, and they want to have confidence that it will happen. So. Um, it's, it's a need we have, and that's part of the leader's job. How do you do something, especially when you're leading something like we were leading in, in Saudi Arabia, which was impossible to do. It never been done in the history of the world. How do you do something that's impossible today? Uh, when people need to feel like it's possible, it's doable within their control and have high confidence before they'll get into action doing that. It's one of the biggest dilemmas that a, that a leader faces. You know, another reason uh, why I want to focus on the story court is because I think it also illustrates another critical lesson about leadership, and that is getting out of our own heads as leaders to understand the perspectives and realities of those around us, which is actually the focus of my book, Leadership Vertigo. I think it's very easy for us as leaders to simply focus on how we view things. Oh, this is impossible for us to do. In the past, we've seen it's impossible to do. And consequently, it's very difficult when we're focusing on our experience or outlook to simply not just be driving an organization based on that singular outlook that we have of what we think is feasible, reasonable, what's not possible and or impossible. And I found that in this whole exercise of reaching out to this community in Saudi Arabia to understand what Inshallah really means and how that influences their view of the world around them and how they experience it, I could see that you were showing these men that you were trying to relate to their perspective to understand them and more importantly, what matters to them. 
And in today's environment, where we see this long overdue recognition that we need to change our workplaces to make them more inclusive, more welcoming to women and minority groups and leadership positions, I think what many people might see as being a simple gesture is actually quite significant because it shows those we lead that our focus is not on what we want, but on what they need, which I think ties into one of the statements that runs throughout your book, namely how the main driver to improving performance in any organization is the leader. And to do that, we have to be willing to change who we are so as to be the kind of leader that our employees need us to be. Yeah, agreed. And I've worked on every continent except Africa. And one of the things I learned by working in all the different cultures is that there are, are an infinite number of ways of looking at things and none of them are right or wrong. And what I look for is what's the way of looking at it in the context we're working right now that's best going to serve us, best going to serve the leader and his or her vision, the mission she's she's calling her people to to follow. So it, it becomes very easy to have very intimate conversations. If you first uh, do what I did over in Saudi was help those men understand uh, that I an experience, I never told them, but they experienced a person who was in love with them. A, parent, a person who cared for them, who I would go and sit down and have tea with them in their office. I would, we would go to dinner and I'd learn about all their families. It all starts with building an intimate relationship. And once they got that, you know, he's in our camp, he's here for us. Uh, he's here to do whatever it takes to assure that we don't harm anyone on this project. Well, it's tough for them to, to be against me then, although I was asking them something very difficult for them to say yes to, which was we're going to build this thing and not harm anybody because they didn't hold it as a possibility. You know, I don't articulate it uh, uh, overtly in that uh, in this book, but there's three questions that I'm taking people through in this book that would be important to remember whenever you're putting as a leader, putting a possibility something that's very compelling and people are really struggling with holding as a possibility and getting in action. And there's three questions you can take them through that guide them through this whole psychological change. The first question is, why can't it happen? Why is it not possible? And when you ask people a, a question like that, so for example, I was working with an oil company and the, the general managers in charge of offshore drilling, he put the question in front of them, uh, can we deliver every will on budget on time, the first attempt? And that had never been done in the history of the industry. Well, the questions he learned lead, led them through, the first one was, why can't it happen? Because you have to allow uh, their experience to be expressed and for them to get that out of themselves. And they will literally paint the walls. They have, in this case, 30, 40 years of experience why it can't happen. That sort of cleans the palate so you can move into moving. You're slowly moving them through these questions toward whether or not they can commit. The second question is, why can it happen? And it's important that they don't answer the question, how can it happen? But why can it happen? And you, can you see that you're moving them from things going on, their experience in, in the past and outside? You've now moved to the present and you're moving more toward inside them. And the responses on this will be very short. They won't be able to paint the walls with it, but they'll talk about what we have and what we can do. In the first question, they tell about all the things they can't do. And then 
the last question, which is really the commitment question, is will it happen? Not how will it happen? Will it happen? Yes or no? And that's the point that people have. You have to lead people to as a leader and give them the opportunity to say yes or no to this question. It has to be their choice. You have to be perfectly okay with them saying no. If not, they're not exercising free will. And I believe free will is the most powerful force in the universe. Uh, that you want them to be able to exercise that. And is in the case of the gentleman in the book, Michael, uh, a, a small group said yes to that question. And ultimately, they not only did it, they did that, what I delivered every well on budget on time the first time, first attempt, they did it for 18 months straight. And he was amazed at how quick the performance changed. But all that was holding people back from performing at that level is they were unable to hold it as a possibility. Um, you know, we can never outperform our self-image or the organization can never outperform its self-image, what it believes it's capable of doing. And if you can shift that, you will can almost overnight achieve a whole new level of performance. You know, Court, I love that you shared those three questions because it's almost a perfect segue to the other story of yours that I really enjoyed and I'd love for you to share with our listeners. And it's the one you write about sharing with a university student while on a flight to Houston, Texas. And the story in question is about a man you worked with who shared with you how he was working so much that when he took his family out to dinner at a restaurant, his six-year-old son wouldn't sit next to him because he didn't know his dad other than being some stranger. And the focus of the story is about choice and changing our world, which you can see then is why I, th I love that you brought those three questions. So mm -hmm. could you share this story with our listeners, Quirks? It's such a surprising twist. And also it really gets the reader to really reevaluate how they view the concept of choice in their lives. Yes, I was in a, it was a, a microprocessing fab. And I was in doing the initial interviews, which many coaches or consultants do just to get the lay of the land. But from the very beginning, um, I'm asking myself, what is it I love about these people? And I'm attempting to fall in love and be, and, and that always somehow causes people to be very intimate with me almost from the get go. There's something about coming from that place that causes people to be very intimate. And I don't know where this gentleman, you could, I could tell he was sort of upset. And I said, you know, is there something bothering you? You seem to be distracted. And he said, I can't get over something that happened to me last night. And he shared the story that you just told that he went to dinner and his son wouldn't even sit with him. And, um, ultimately what I said to him was, um, and he started blaming the company. He started blaming uh, the company he's worked for and what a horrible company they were to do that to him. And, and he wasn't being responsible and owning the circumstances he had created, not his company. And although I wasn't in there to do that type of work, I felt compelled, you know, out of care and concern for this person to help him see that. So at a certain point, I said, you know, I don't think you're upset with your company. I think you're upset with yourself. And you're upset with yourself because you've made choices in your life where you've gotten yourself in a situation where your three-year-old son doesn't even know who you are. And, you know, I felt bad in a sense telling him that, but I, I, I couldn't walk away, say, I love this man if I didn't share that with him. Well, 
to my surprise, he broke down and he fell to the floor and he was sobbing. And I was down there patting him on the back. And and he said, what am I going to do? Uh, after he got it composed through tearful eyes, he said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, you st- I think you still have the same choice you've ha- always had. You can either go back to your office and your cubicle after this interview and go back to work and keep doing the thing you're doing. Or you can leave this place and go home and spend the day with your son. And immediately he came up with all the reasons why he couldn't do that. And I pointed out to him, well, apparently you're going to make the same choice. And at a certain point, he said, would you come with me? And I said, sure, where are we going? He says, I'm going to, to go home and spend the day with my son, but I'm afraid I'll lose my nerve. Would you walk me uh, out of the fab? And these fabs are huge. It's a 20, 30 minute walk to get out of this fab. So sure, I'm walking with him. We get right to the door just when we're going to exit the building and we hear someone yell out his name and he, we spin around and he goes, oh, damn, it's my boss. And so we go back and talk to her and she hands him these big binders. We got an emergency meeting tomorrow morning. You've got to study all this stuff. It's critical. You know, life and death is uh, we tend to make things at work that aren't life and death. We make them life and death. And he looked, he looked at me and said, what I do now? And I said, well, again, you have the same choice to make. And to my surprise, he handed me the books and said, would you put these in my cubicle? I'm going home. And I didn't see him for several days. And to be honest, there's a part of me wondering, did I get this guy fired? You know, did he? (laughs) (laughs) But one day I come around the corner and these fabs are huge, as they say, and there he is. And he waves at me and gets my attention. He comes over and pulls me in a conference room. He tells me the wonderful story about the wonderful day he had with his son and, and all these different things. And, and I said, so what happened to the big meeting? And he said, well, it was, it was postponed. And I said, do you realize and I sincerely believe this. Do you realize that that meeting was postponed because of the choice you made? And he said, what? And I said, I, I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in other people's life. When people start living the life of their uh, intention, a very intentional life, very clear on who they are, what they stand for, and they start making choices consistent with that, the universe lines up to support you. It happens every time I've been around someone who does that. And he's saying, so you're you're saying we wouldn't have had this meeting if I we we would have had this meeting if I wouldn't have made this choice. I said, I'm, I'm not saying that. I don't know what would happen if you wouldn't make that choice. But I do know when you make that type of choice, the universe lines up. People will show up in your life ready to support you. Events will happen that you would have never anticipated, all in support of this choice you've made. And I sin- sincerely believe that. And ultimately, he redesigned his job and sat down with his boss and they redesigned his job so his son could know him and and he could uh, continue to work there. Corey, again, this was another story that I really enjoyed because this one gets you to really think about your relationship with choice and especially how we go about making those choices. Namely, how often we rationalize why certain choices or options or paths to take are not worthwhile or feasible or realistic because we're making these evaluations with our brain. And as I've shared with many leaders in my work, we have to understand that our brains are cognitive misers. It doesn't like to expend a lot of its limited energy. And so (laughs) the default is to lean on seeing things from a negative perspective. So it shuts down our line of inquiry rather fast. 
For example, should I pursue that new career opportunity? Your brain will probably respond, I probably won't get it, so why bother wasting my time, especially given how much I have to do already? But as you write in your book, we need to look at choice through the lens of our heart, where we're not evaluating our choices in terms of the if-then equation. For example, if I get that promotion, and if I get that raise, then I can buy a bigger house, or then I can buy a new car, and that should make me happy because that's what we define as being a successful life. Instead, by looking at choice through the lens of our heart, what we're basically saying is we're choosing to do what we want, which is what this dad did in making that choice to be with his son instead of staying those long hours at the office working on a report, which ultimately wasn't needed after all. Exactly. Yeah, the, um, I was always taught my, you know, as I say in the book, I uh, am part American Indian, and the Indian side of me was always taught to follow what they call the pollen path. And that's another way of saying, follow your bliss. That's why understanding and knowing yourself is so critical Uh, Because leaders do follow their bliss. Leaders do make choices consistent with the vision. They embody body who they say they are and the stand they are and and the vision that they they express. Um, And people are attracted to that. And and as I say in the book, uh, this form of leader, an all-in leader, is one of the most fortunate leaders because he or she doesn't have to do any heavy lifting. It's all done by the followers. The followers are the ones who actually realize the future, the vision for the leader. The leader's job is to create the psychological, I often call it like a popcorn popper. It's like a psychological container where you're meeting the emotional needs of human beings. You know, people want to play a big game. They want to have confidence and victory. They want a sense of belonging and that they matter. Uh, they want a positive self-image and, and they want opportunities to learn and grow. These are things that if you give them to people and they very rarely experience all of these at work, the level of performance that can be created out of that is unprecedented. And that's why when I go in with a leader, uh, I always talk with them about if we want to work together, what's the big game we're going to play? Because it's no fun playing a small game and you can't get the you can't create this circumstances that I'm talking about here, unless you are playing a big game. But most of them, if you look at their vision, it's something like we want to be the undisputed leader in the top quality. And well, who doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't jazz anybody. You know, as I, I like to say, we don't remember Dr. King because he stood up and said, I have a strategic plan. <laughs> you know? he, he, he articulated a future where many, many people said, I want to be part of that future. And were willing to do whatever it took and, and willing to even change the way they thought and their beliefs of, about different races and different people because that future was so compelling. Who doesn't want a future where our kids grow up and all this BS that goes on between us today doesn't exist? And you know, there's a line you share in this story in your book that I want to share with our listeners because it really encapsulates this whole message behind how we should view our choices. And that is the line you write, what all happy people have in common is that they're living the lives they choose to live. And I love this line because it mirrors something that I shared in my TEDx talk I gave a few months ago and which people can find on YouTube where I share two personal stories of mine to illustrate this idea that 
what allows us to thrive is finding that sense of purpose in what we do, that it's tied to something bigger than us, right? Playing that big game, as you said. And when it comes to this approach to how we view choice, it mirrors the statement I make in my TEDx talk of how our sense of purpose is not simply defined or derived by what we do, but by how we choose to view what we do. So there's some definite connections here between your story and the message I shared in that talk, Court. Yeah, and there is a chapter in the uh, book where I sit down with my son-in-law and daughter, and they ask me to coach them, and I essentially help them make clear on what you're just talking about. What is the future that we want? What is our bliss? And they rearrange their whole life around that. And I actually approached my son-in-law a couple months ago with a very lucrative business offer where he would have to change what he's doing in the life he's living, but he could probably quadruple his income. And he looked at me and said, Court, I just love what I'm doing too much. And I'm making as much money as I, I need to make right now. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else with my life that I'm doing right now. And I actually felt very good that he responded that way. Um, I, I wanted to give him the opportunity to make this change. But I was very pleased he chose with his heart and not with his bank account. So, Court, unlike my other guests, the focus of our conversation has been on some of these stories you shared and what lessons we can learn from it on how to succeed at leadership today. But I wanted to leave our audience with something else to ponder and consider, something that will help them reflect on their leadership and how they both view and approach their role. So, what message or idea or, to use your popcorn popper uh, analogy, kernel, would you like to leave our listeners with about leadership and improving performance in their organization? Well, you can't lead until you're leading your own life and you're lead following what I call your bliss. What a, a gentleman I, I became very familiar with years ago, Joseph Campbell said, call, called uh, follow your bliss. So that's the first place to work. When anyone asks me, do I, you recommend a book about leadership? I say, well, it, you probably wouldn't find it in the leadership section, but it's the first book I'd recommend any human being ever read. And it's called An Open Life by Joseph Campbell. And it's a very short read, but it's essentially a uh, guidebook on how to uh, discover and follow your bliss. Wonderful. Again, Court, your book is certainly different from the other books that I've showcased here on my show. And I have to say, it was truly a pleasant surprise to read. My thanks again to share some of those stories and sharing your insights on leadership. You're welcome. I enjoyed being here. I've been talking with Court Dial about his book, Heretics to Heroes, a memoir on modern leadership. To learn more about Court's work, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tanvirnasir.com. And if you found my show on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio, I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment and please rate my show. Until next time, this is Tanvir Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.